0: You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can om- open them up to Malachi. This is the last book in uh, the New Test or sorry, the Old Testament right before the New Testament. So, if you're opening your Bibles up, if you've hit like Matthew, Mark, you've gone too far. Go back a book. We're gonna be in Malachi. When I was first getting familiar with my Bible, I was like, Malachi? Is this guy like an Italian prophet or something? But no, it's Malachi, and so that's where we're gonna be. And so Malachi, his name means my messenger. That's what it means, it is, is if you interpret his name, it means my messenger, and so he is a prophet, and what that means is God speaks to him, and then he speaks what God told him. And so he's truly a messenger, God's messenger, to his people. And so this is the last book of the Old Testament. And chronologically, what would happen after this? God would speak through Malachi, which is what we're going to study up until Christmas. And then Todd Van Voorst is so thinking out ahead. And then what would have happened, though, is God would have given Malachi these words and then 400 years of silence, which God's not speaking to his people, moving amongst them in these way, and the next time that God comes on the scene is speaking through an angel to a young virgin girl who would give birth to the Messiah. <laughs> right? And so it, this again, thankful for Todd thinking this out, it's like it leads perfectly into Christmas, but this would have been God's last words to his people for 400 years. And so pretty important stuff. And so we paired this with Nehemiah, which we just finished, because it's the same time frame. This is after the exile. They're brought back. They've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, but they're still kind of reforming their hearts. There's still some work yet to do. And so if you were with us last week as we finished Nehemiah, Luke taught, and it was really just this great illustration that the people of Israel were kind of content in life cleaning up cobwebs meaning like they were content cleaning up some messes, but never thought to kill the spiders. Does that make sense? It's like, I'm just going to kind of manage these symptoms, but never really take care of the root. And Nehemiah comes on the scene. He's like, oh, oh we're killing spiders, you know? And so just brings it. It's like, we need to drive these people out. We need to do this. And so they really kind of reform. And so again, you've got the, the, kind of the scene of what we're still talking in that vein, they they have not yet arrived. And so Malachi really picks up in that tone that there's still some work to be done. They're under construction, our series theme. Their hearts are still under construction. There's still some things that need to be addressed. And so Malachi chapter one, verse one, says that the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, verse two, this is God speaking through Malachi. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Okay, stop there. Uh, God is speaking through his messenger. And the first thing God wants to communicate to this whole group of people, he's saying, I have loved you. And you see like the response, and it's going to set the tone for the book. And I don't know how else to like envision this, but like this whole group of people like, Really? how have you loved us? If you're going to start questioning God, like you better be ready to throw down, right? Like God proclaims like, I've loved you. It's like, really? It, it makes me think of like, uh, if you've ever, uh, think of a courtroom, you know, somebody goes on the witness stand and we're going to kind of go back and forth. What is happening? And some of you like are envisioning Judge Judy, cause that's all you know right now. That's okay. Go with that. Right? And so What is happening is the nation of Israel is putting God on the witness stand and God says, I have loved you. And they're questioning him like, really? How have you loved us? Man, okay, so God goes and you're gonna see as he continues on, he references Jacob. He said, I've loved Jacob, but Esau. And so God proclaims his love and he backs it up by telling them about Jacob. And in verse 3, he said, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to the hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. But again, in context, he talks about his love for Jacob. Y'all are going to get some Old Testament history here, because that, that would have been a weighty thing. He's like, I have loved you. And he references Jacob. So who is Jacob? Jacob and Esau were brothers, twins, born at the same time, and Jacob is the one whom before they've done anything good or bad, God said, I'm gonna be with him. And so Jacob gets the birthright. Jacob gets the blessing. Jacob wrestles with God and gets a name change. I don't know how that worked, but he gets his name changed to Israel. Okay, and that's who he's talking to. This is an oracle to the people of Israel. That is Jacob, same person, just a name change. And so God's saying, man, I have chosen you. And there's some weight to this because let me continue the Old Testament history here is is God then used Jacob slash Israel and from there he had 12 sons who would begin to grow their families into what would be the 12 tribes of Israel. Anybody name any of those sons? Maybe one of them would ring a bell. Joseph guy with the Technicolor dream coat, right? Like that was, that would have been Jacob's favorite son. And so he gives him the sweet coat. Okay. It's starting to ring a bell. You saw something on Broadway about this, right? Not quite like that, but, but anyways, God would have, uh, so God would have grown this family. And if you briefly remember Old Testament history, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, jealousy, And they would, if we got the map, actually, Nathan, if you pull up the map, you're gonna see they were in this modern day kind of Israel. You see that there? And he would have went down into Egypt, which would have been in that corner of Africa. His brother sold them there. What they intended for harm, God meant for good because he would then be right underneath Pharaoh, second only to, to Pharaoh, world power. And so God would have incubated him there and there's a famine And so his brothers come for food. Remember some of this Old Testament stuff? And they move down there, 70 in all, and they're there in Egypt. And God, again, descendants of Jacob. Jacob himself would have been one of those that moved to Egypt to be with Joseph. God grows their little family of 70. The next time you pick it up after Genesis is in the book of Exodus. And what started out as 70 people down in Egypt grew to about 2 to 3 million as Moses is leading them out back to the promised land. Again, of which they didn't have any inheritance. They were just this weak people that could have easily been been snuffed out. They were foreigners in this land. And God's saying, you descendants of Jacob, you descendants of Israel, you want to know how I love you? I gave you homes that you didn't build, cities, I gave you vineyards that you didn't plant. I gave you this, and if we go to the map again, I gave you this promised land, and again, there's some wicked people that God drove out to do that, but he said, I'm gonna be your God, and you're gonna be my people, and look at where that is located. When it comes to the ancient world, this would have been Grand Central Station. Trade routes from Africa to Asia, Europe, all would have passed through this. It's desert on one side, water on the other, And so this would have been the central most prominent piece of land in their day. And God's saying, I'm going to set you up there. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you rule over you. And all these people that are worshiping these little sticks that they carve and these little gold statues, they're going to walk through your land. And they're going to hear the story about how I walked you through dry land and split the sea. They're going to hear about how I fed you manna from heaven, how your clothes didn't wear out. And they're going to know that you have a God that loves you. And everybody's going to worship me because of my love poured out to you. And so Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, you want to know how I love you? One name, Jacob. And that would have carried all that to it. As they're hearing this, as they're kicking back in their homes. God's saying, you want to know how I love you? I chose you. And I set you up and blessed you in this way. But why do we lose perspective? Does that make sense? Somehow, despite all of that, they questioned God and at the very core, God, do you even love us? You ever had those moments? Come on now, we can be real, we're in church, right? You ever had those moments where you kind of lose perspective and you're like, man, God, I don't even know. Like, I just feel distant from you. Okay, I'll share one. Pastor people, right? This summer I was having one of those moments. And for me, like, the thing that really makes me question that is like relational tension. And I can deal with like a lot of like inanimate stuff, like, oh, we need to, you know, raise more money or something, you know, for our family, or we need to, uh, you know, this pipe broke. I'm like, oh, I'll just fix it. It's just a pipe, like water in our basement, that stuff. I don't like water in my basement, but that stuff, I'm like, you know, it's just, we can deal with that, but people tension, man, for some reason, 6'3", T20, but if I got like, you know, people tension, I just become like putty. I don't know why I, you know, some of you, like, you seem like a big, bold, like redneck farm guy, mm-hmm until I have relational tension, and then I just melt, right? I, I don't know why, but I just remember um, just pursuing somebody as their pastor, and there's just these challenges, and I'm like, I know they don't like me pursuing them, but I know I need to, and here's this tension, and I just remember being in the office, and I'm supposed to be working and getting stuff done, and I'm like, I just, I just can't do it. You know, that's probably what I sounded like in my head, but I just like, I'm like, I'm just gonna go for a walk. And I end up, our office is kind of downtown, and there's a big old cemetery, like a block or two from our office. And for some reason, I'm just walking through the cemetery, thinking about all my problems, right? All my big, awesome problems. And then you're walking around, and you start looking at tombstones. And you notice the names. And then you start to notice like more specific things, like the dates. And some of them are really long, you know, long lives. Some of them are short. Uh, and then he, then he started to see, they all have something in common. They're dead. <laughs> Don't know if you know that. you like, you walk around a cemetery, like those people are dead. And for, for them, it was God brought about perspective by looking back at history. For me, I'm telling you, there was perspective brought looking forward. As I'm walking around thinking about my problems, <laughs> and it, it wasn't an audible voice from the Lord, but just as well have been as God's like, you're going to have one of these someday too. Like, are you going to sit, stand, and stew, and, and be sad about this? Or are you just going to do what I'm telling you to do, man up, continue to have hard conversation? It, is not, it just brought about such a perspective. I don't even know how to begin to explain it. But, but looking at the future in that reality, the death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Psalmist, you know, saying uh, that teach us to number our days, O Lord, that may, we may gain a heart of wisdom. It just brought about perspective. And so for here, they're saying, well, God, I don't know how you loved us. Look back. Maybe if you're one of those that's like, I don't, I don't know, I don't feel like I, look at your health, look at your family, look at your education, where you're at. You can look back and see God's hand is all over your life. Look forward and say, okay, what? You, You have a divide. And for me, it's like, what are you going to do? Take your ball and go home? Like knowing that this is the reality? I think the past can provide perspective. That's what he does here. The future can provide perspective. But the best perspective that we had, that we have advantage, and this isn't to sound corny because we're in church, but the reality is Jesus Christ. People are like, I don't know if God loves me. Really? Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. God can be no more loving and good to you than he already has through Jesus Christ. God, I don't know if you love me. I I got to see on that test. Really? Because I sent my son to die for you that you could spend eternity with me. The cross puts things in perspective. And so, why we have this tendency to just put God on trial, myself included. Look back, look ahead, look to Jesus, and you should have perspective. But something transitions here in the text. (laughs) You know, it's like, case closed. Anybody doubting that God loves them? Like, okay, no, you can come off the witness stand. And God comes down, and he's like, now, Israel, why don't you go on up there? (laughs) You question, do I love you? Let me ask you, do you love me? (laughs) Go to your text, verse six. God says, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name. God's saying, I'm your father, where's my honor? I'm your master, where's this right fear? And he's saying this to the priest. It's not even a question of love. He's just saying, is there any respect and these priests are despising his name. That is, these are the, the holiest among them. These are the people that are supposed to be leading other people. And yet they're despising. That word despise means to look down on with contempt or have a deep repugnance for. Like you just, ugh. okay, how do I illustrate this in Mizzou? Okay, think of Jayhawks, right? <laughs> we joke, but but... For me, I, I know there's a Jayhawk fan in the crowd, but but for the rest of us, like for me, I'm from Iowa. You know, I went to Iowa State. There's just something like when I heard about Iowa Hawkeyes, I imagine it's like Mizzou Tigers to Jayhawks. There's just something in me, and I'm not making this up, but you're just like, why? Why would anybody in their right mind, Lawrence, Kansas, really? Like, like okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, like, like. It's just, you have this, this, like, why would anybody in those colors and rock chalk, jack, what does that even mean? And, and so there's just this, ugh, you know? And, and so when you, when you think about someone, there is this contempt you feel towards them. And We're having a little bit of fun, but do you understand that, that when a true, loyal Mizzou Tiger fan, like, hears Jayhawk, there's something. And what God is saying in this text, and this is the only way I know how to best illustrate it, he's saying, your priest, your holy people, feel like that, that is the reaction to me. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like they hear God, they're like, I just, that is how they feel towards God only amped up when we're talking the God of the universe. And so God's saying, I've loved you, and you despise me. That's how you feel about me. And so he goes and he continues, because again, you got these people, the tone was set in verse two, they're like, oh, really? But you say, how have we despised your name? Glad you ask. Verse seven, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, <laughs> oh, man, they are digging in. But how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Here's what's happening. Time out. God has literally given them everything. 100% of what they have comes from God. It's so true of us too. You might think, well, I work hard for my money. Yeah, with the health that God's given you, with the breath that God has given you, with the ability that God has given you, you originate none of that in and of yourself. Apart from God holding you together, and again, seeing that this week with Joel, apart from the hand of God being merciful on your life, anything North of hell is grace. We deserve nothing in and of ourselves, but God is gracious. And so here you have a group of people that they've been given 100%. And God is simply saying, hey, would you give your first and your best some of it back to me? You can keep the majority of it, but some of it bring back as a sacrifice, as an offering to me. And what that means is this is before the time of Jesus, and so they would do sin offerings so they would take God is a wrathful God there must be punishment paid and so they would lay their hands upon the animal sacrifice as a way to say man blood must be shed and so they'd lay their hands their sins upon that animal and that animal would take their place Some of it was just offerings of thanks and some of it went towards like the priest and the people working in the temple God would set up that whole tribe, the Levites that were ministering in the temple, God's saying, you guys don't plant vineyards, you guys don't have flocks, you you gotta dedicate yourself to all my work and we'll just let the other 11 tribes in their generosity, they'll help take care of you. And the people are shutting that down. They're doing lame sacrifices, lame offerings. And so what does he mean by this polluted food? He says in verse eight, the, the animals are blind, lame, and sick. That's what they're bringing as their sacrifice. So grew up on a farm. Like, if you can imagine, or maybe you've seen like the the little infomercials about like giving towards like pets that have been abandoned, right? You just see this like, sickly looking, ganted up like three-legged blind sheep, right? You can like see its ribs and it's just, somebody needs to just put it out. That's what really needs to happen. But what's happening is they're taking these sick, blind, lame, frail animals and saying, you know what? We're supposed to give to the Lord. We'll just give him this. It's a sheep, kind of. And then they take it out and that is like what they are sacrificing and what god's saying in this text is like that's not an offering that's not worshipful that's cheap that's selfish that despises my name and he goes on and he's saying give that to your governor again this is an agrarian culture there they would pay their taxes sometimes with food i mean you can give them a chunk of money or you give them a sheep he's like give that to your governor Would he accept that? Absolutely not. He's not going to be happy if you try and pay your taxes with that. But you cheat me. And what does God say verse 10? If you want to underline, this is a good one. He said, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Shut the doors. It would be better if you brought nothing than brought that. Celebrated our eighth wedding anniversary last week for you young married people, right? You don't want to forget your anniversary. But worse than forgetting your anniversary would be remembering your anniversary and bringing a terrible gift to that. Can you imagine? It'd be one thing to forget the day that I married my wife and and be be grateful for that. It'd be another thing to remember and consciously, you know, you know what? And go on Craigslist and buy a used mop and present that to my wife for our anniversary. Do you see how that's more offensive? It's like you knew you were supposed to be bringing offerings. You knew you were supposed to be sacrificing. You knew that. It is worse that you took that lame sheep, put it on a cart, brought it halfway around the world, and then sacrifice that God's saying I wish you just shut the doors just shut it down if that's what it's going to be if you know you're supposed to be generous you know you're supposed to give and that's what you want to do be better to just not because here's what's happening is your giving communicates what you think of God your giving communicates what you think of God. So when somebody grabs their best breeding strong stock, this healthy, young ram, woolly, big, fat, white thing, and said, I was going to use this for my breeding stock. This was going to be my prize ram. You know what? I'm going to take it, and I'm going to give this to the Lord. That says something about their faith, their trust in God, the worthiness that they think God is worthy of, right? It's a value statement. Now, here's the thing. Your giving communicates what you think about God. And so he's confronting them in this. But don't make this mistake. People like me are going to be black and white, and it's like, so is it wrong to have nice sheep? That's to say in our context, is it wrong to have a a nice house, a nice car, uh, to take a vacation with my family? Is God saying that it's wrong to have nice sheep? No. No, what God is saying is it's wrong to have nice sheep and be unwilling to sacrifice any of them. Verse 14, he clarifies, he said, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. That's the problem. The problem isn't that, that you know you have something nice, the problem is that your only investment, your only nice things are just for you. And so, by the grace of God, yeah, invest well, be shrewd, grow your flock, but just don't be stingy when it comes to the Lord because your giving communicates what you think about God. God's given a hundred percent, you're just simply releasing back to him what he's given. It shows an incredible trust that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that he is worthy. That's what they're giving. That's what our giving communicates back to the Lord. Now in their town, their offerings, it would have been incredibly visual. Like it would have been one thing to see the Joneses with their like big sheep, like, you know, a couple of them, like one under the front, one under the back, like carrying it up there, you know, and like, we give this to the Lord. And meanwhile, you know, here comes the Smiths and they just kind of like got their little frail sheep and they're like trying to perk its head up, you know, as it's like kind of, da- and they're like, we give this to the Lord. Anybody watching would have been like, hmm, <laughs> I think one of you doesn't think very highly of God, right? It would have been incredibly visual, and I'm kind of bummed because here in our day, how, what people think about God, their giving, is not visual. It's a very private matter. In fact, even if it were at best, like you, you could write a check, you know, and you can write a check for whatever amount, two cents or $2,000. You fold it up, it looks the same as you drop it in that box. Not like a sheep, you know, like you would have been able to tell which ones were good, which ones are bad. You can't tell. In fact, most of our giving is like done online. And so I was just thinking, in the spirit of this text, please don't walk out during this illustration, okay, stay with me. In the spirit of this text, like what if we made our giving visual as it would have been then? And so to get with the accountant and say, hey, can you give me, and the slide, can you give me, everybody's giving, and we'll just put that up there because, again, I would want everybody to be able to see what it is that we think about God. Our giving communicates that, and so to have like kind of that being shown. Nate, do we have that? That no, guys, I'm not crazy. Come on, right? I, I'm not going to post your giving up there. It would have been in that time. It would have been very visual. But there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't do that here and now. But here's the thing: is I wish I could and not for the reason that you might think, not to shame anybody, but the reality is, <laughs> I'm trying not, the reality is the generosity of this church is flat out incredible. Like I wish I could put our giving up there because you guys as a church are so incredibly generous. It's the freshman gal that's working a minimum wage food service job that's giving generously of what she's making. It's the young couple who's never given before but decided God is worth it. So they sell a car so they can carpool together, get rid of a car payment so that they can begin giving generously to the church. These are the real stories that are happening. It's the the family that just continues to grow and money gets tighter, but they say, we want to continue to be generous, letting our giving giving determine our living. And so it's that family that continues to have growing expenses, but they want to train their kids that God is worthy. And so they give generously. I wish I could, because I believe that the vast majority, again, as as leadership, we said, we just want to have 100% participation. Just participate, And y'all don't just participate, you show up. It's why last year in our first year as a church, our expected giving was at 256%. I read this thing and and I'm, I'm seeing what Malachi is communicating on behalf of the Lord. And I'm like, I just can't, I don't, that's not our people. Like I'll teach them the text and what was happening there. I really feel like for the overwhelming majority of the people, your heart, what you're communicating with your giving is that you trust God, that you want to be generous. And so I would just want to say, I am so encouraged. And it's not only just in finances, it's in shoeboxes. We've referenced it, but it, you can tell it's a big deal that, that last year with about the same number of people, we filled up 72. This year we'll do more than double that. That communicates something. It communicates that you believe it's worth it to give these kids a, just a blessing from the Lord that they would get to hear the gospel. And so most people I know took twice as many shoeboxes this year. It, it's, it's, certainly it's your treasure, but your time. It's why we as a church plant, 14 months in, our kids ministry that meets upstairs right now, we're down to like once every five weeks people are serving in that. Because people are so willing to volunteer. Talents it's why that we're going to do a Christmas special here on December 10th. Super excited, because people are willing to use their gifts, their time, their talents, their treasures, to make those things happen. I just can't relate to the crowd that Malachi is speaking to, because that's not you, Anthem Church. Here's the deal. I wish we could make it visual because what you would see is people who've allowed their giving to determine their living. Meaning they're saying first and foremost this is what we're gonna give and we'll figure out how to live off the rest. We're not gonna give God our leftovers. We're not gonna set aside our flock and then the things that don't make the cut that's what we're gonna give to the Lord. That was the spirit of these people here. We'll give what's left over. I'm saying I'm so encouraged by people and it's Again, it communicates what you believe about God. And I would say for those that relate more to the heart of the stingy, that give their leftovers, what does God say in the text to those that have that mentality? Shut the doors. Do you think God needs your sheep? (laughs) He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. (laughs) Like God spoke them into existence. God doesn't need your sheep. I would say like this, Anthem Church doesn't need your money. If you love it that much and you wanna hoard it, keep it. Our, our people are, are generous. God loves a cheerful giver. It should be a worshipful thing to wanna to give back to God, to wanna to see missions work taking place, to wanna to see kids adopted, to wanna to see shoeboxes sent, to, to wanna to see ministry go forth to college students in this community. It should be a delightful thing to give. And if that's not your heart, again, I think it says something about your view of God, his sovereignty, and his ability to provide. I'd say, just keep it. Genuinely mean that. (laughs) We're fine. Keep it. This isn't one of those money talks where the pastor's like, we need more money. (laughs) 256%. (laughs) All that's in a bank right now where we're going to be able to, Lord willing, purchase a building as soon as somebody gives us one and shows us one, right? Like, it puts us in a position to do those things. I mean, it's been fun to talk about what that looks like for expanding ministry, and it's because of your generosity. And so for those that relate to Israel, say, repent. That's what I really want. You can either keep it, or you can repent and change and be generous. Those are your options. But if you continue to persist in offering lame sacrifices and say, it doesn't go well. Shut the doors. And for those that are giving generously, please be encouraged. Like it seems hard, you can preach this hard text, it's like the person that doesn't need to hear it that's already giving generously, that college student that's already giving away half their paychecks, like, I suppose I can give away three quarters of it. You're doing good, okay? You just calm down. That's, we're not picking on you. The text is aimed at those that are hoarding. And guys, I'm saying, I wish we could make it visual because I'd say the overwhelming response of this church is one of generosity. And the big thing is that it communicates what you think about God. But here's the thing. While it communicates what you think about God, it doesn't define who God is. God determined that already. And we see in the text, God said, whatever you do with your money, okay, that says something about what you think of me. But here's the reality in verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And in verse 14, he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is reality. God has loved us as displayed through choosing us in Jesus Christ those that are chosen, that have been forgiven. God's love, is that reflective in our lives? God's saying it ought to be, but regardless of whether you reflect that or not, God's saying make no mistake about it. I am a great king. I will not be defined by your lame sacrifices or your good ones. Either way, apart from that, I am a great king. And so we get to respond today, as we often do, with communion. How do we know that we serve a great king? That he can back up the claim that he's making here in Malachi chapter one? It's because our king came down from on high and humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, and humbled himself and became obedient to death, death on a cross, That's the great king we serve. And so as we take communion, what we're doing is we're acknowledging God in his awesomeness would send his son Jesus to die for our sins, to forgive us. And so Jesus said, take communion, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we break the bread, it's signifying Jesus' body that was broken. As we dip it in the cup, it's signifying the blood that was shed. Should be our blood that was shed for our sins, but Jesus' blood that was shed that we could be forgiven. And so the band's gonna come on up and the, and the music plays. In your kind of own time, make your way to the communion table. We've got four of them, one in every corner. If, you know, we want to want like a gluten allergy to not let anybody take communion, so there's that option up here, gluten-free, but take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and remember and here's the thing, Anthem Church, as you do that, <laughs> you, as you ask God in light of this, applying this message, what do you want from me? Would you just reflect on what it is that He's done for you? He sent His Son to forgive us. That puts things in perspective. And therefore, it's easy to give your life to missions, it should be easy to give generously of our time, talents, and treasures. And so communion, reflecting on what Jesus has done, puts it all in perspective. I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, thank you. God, thank you that you're not calling us to do anything that you haven't already done. You gave your whole life for us. And so Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown to us. Lord, we just acknowledge right now that all that we have, it's from you. And Lord, would this truly be a surrender now as we take communion? God, that in light of that, we could forgive because you've forgiven us. We could love because you loved us. And we could give because you have been so generous to us. And so God, would you renew our hearts? Would it be with great joy that we respond today?